Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Charles C. Mann, an American journalist, author, and science communicator. His book, 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, won the National Academy's Communication Award for Best Book of the Year. He is a contributing editor for Science, The Atlantic Monthly, and Wired, and the author of four books, including The Wizard and the Prophet, which is what we're going to focus in on today. It's great to have you on the show, Charles. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So, Charles, I, I always get uh, you know the accolades and bona fides of my guests out of the way early. Um, but I find that my guests can typically do a far more interesting introduction than I can. Um, so I like to get my guests to introduce themselves, but if you could do that kind of in the light of, um, maybe exploring the kind of wizard prophet uh, archetype within your own life in, in, yeah. in a short time, maybe give me like in two minutes. <laughs> well, um, I'm a science journalist and that means basically I am lucky enough to have the job to find out about cool things that other people are finding about and tell, pe tell people about them. Um, I've been covering environmental issues, which I've been very interested in uh, for like 30 years and talking to many, many scientists, activists, politicians, ordinary people about these issues. And over time, I realized that the kind of answers I was hearing to the question, what should we do, fell into two broad categories. And for convenience sake, I called them wizards and prophets. And basically this book is, which we've been cooking for a long time, is sort of my attempt to describe the types of solutions to our environmental questions um, broadly construed that uh, people have come up with and talk about the, this conflict between these kind of two different visions of the world of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. No, I've definitely noticed that in reading your works, um, you know, because you're collecting, you know, the, the individual works of people that are studying a very precise topic, right? And they dive into it and really delve into it. And you get to come along and, and like beads kind of string together this necklace, um, which is just it's kind of a beauty to behold. And sometimes I feel bad for the people that are kind of so focused in on their little territory. I'm like, oh, Charles got to have all the fun. Like you got to weave this into a really expansive argument. So uh, that's been <laughs> well, on the other hand, they get to really know what they're talking about. And <laughs> Fair enough. Always, always a wonderful gotta, thing. Yeah, I got to say your books are, are very well researched. Uh, I feel like you do a lot more than, than scrape the bottom of the Petri dish. But we'll, we'll talk about the Petri dish <laughs> in some detail to come now. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, the first episode of this podcast, uh, actually spent quite a bit of time, um, talking about this concept of wizards and prophets. Um, I found it, you know, when I read your book, having this kind of archetypal binary structure, I mean, it's, it's a little simplistic, but it really helped me understand the basis of a lot of, you know, the arguments I might be getting into with people. And it sort of kind of depersonalized the debate a little bit and made it more kind of humane, gave me more compassion and understanding for, my opponents, and, and indeed, in terms of my own uh, background and upbringing, I've sort of swung from being fairly prophetic to being fairly wizardly, um, you know, and, and again, not quite fitting in clearly into these categories as, as they're kind of defined. But, you know, I was raised in a, in a very, you know, humanistic family, um, I had a lot of sort of conservation values growing up in the country and kind of loving the woodlot that I kind of grew up next to and, you know, vowing that I would you know, fight the developers to the death if they tried to bulldoze my my forest. 
Um, you know, in high school, I was very dismissive of, you know, the kind of tech, techno fixtures. I had a lot of the anxieties that I think you describe within the profits. Um, in, in university, I, I saw a lot of uh, kind of Malthusianism in my, you know, biological studies, um, you know, especially kind of microbiologists and these kind of Petri dish analogies. So, and it's been interesting more recently, you know, learning about climate change, becoming concerned about it, looking for solutions and being very much swayed now into more of a, a wizardly focus. Um, so, you know, these archetypes have been, have been very useful for me. Um, you know, you, you center, um, these archetypes around two, two figures, um, uh, Norman Borlaug and, uh, and, uh, William Vogt. Um, could you, you know, just, uh, give us a little overview on, on these personalities and why you chose them as, as the kind of representatives of these archetypes? Sure. When I talk about, you know, wizards and prophets, um, as you were saying, it's a superficial. The way I like to think about it is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think this is a useful um, way of describing things. And wizards are basically people who believe that science and technology properly applied can let us produce our way um, out of our environmental dilemmas. And with that idea comes a whole lot of other sort of ideas about values and what's important and what's not important. And prophets, on the other hand, don't believe that. They believe that the laws of nature, the laws of ecology, what, ha what have you, dictate that there is a system that we have to function within. And that system has limits and we surpass those limits to our peril. And if you think about it, um, these kind of ideas are kind of the opposite of each other. And I wanted to find people who embodied them. And the two people that I found were unfortunately, sorry, there's a telephone that rang. Um, it, and one was Norman Borlaug. And the reason I picked him really was that over the you know, many years I've had conversations with researchers who are of the, what I call the wizardly bent. Very, very often I would hear something like, I want to do for X what Norman Borlaug did for wheat. And what mm -hmm. he did was through this sort of fantastic amount of um, hard work was to double or even triple the amount of wheat that you could get, extract from a single field. And uh, this had enormous impact all over the world. Um, and, you know, people, he has been credited variously with things like saving a billion lives, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, ending hunger and all. It's a little more complicated than that, but there's no question that he had an enormous impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And the other is a guy named William Vogt. And um, he's much less well-known, after all, won a Nobel Prize. Um, Vogt is the guy who wrote the first modern we're all going to hell book if you know what i mean the <laughs> first the, he is the antecedent of paul ehrlich who wrote the you know the population bomb or the people in the limits to growth or the people who wrote famine 1975 or al gore's books or and i would argue bill mckibben's books all of these stem directly from um the ideas that uh, william vote put together and his fundamental idea is that the um, that there's an ecological concept called carrying capacity, which refers to, you know, when he took it to the amount of, you know, cows that you could put into a field without uh, over, you know, overgrazing. And he stretched it like taffy to cover the whole world and said, there's only so much human activity that the world can take and we're exceeding that and the results will be catastrophic. And this sort of this is the fundamental idea behind the modern environmental movement. And um, in the sort of happy coincidence that makes uh, writers like myself um, very pleased, these mm -hmm. two guys met each other 
They got their ideas at roughly the same time in almost exactly the same place. They met each other. They hated each other. They um, fought, and then they never talked. And I thought, <laughs> this is exactly what's happened, is that these ideas have been colliding without people speaking to each other for decades now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's sometimes it's kind of easy to see why. And, and again, having that empathy for sort of having walked in, in both shoes in, in a way is, is interesting for me. But, you know, of late, I've become I've had a hard time sort of seeing the goodness in, in the prophets, particularly when looking at, um, again, this, this kind of Malthusianism that, that permeates the movement right from Bode himself. Um, could you situate us a little bit? Because you, you mentioned the sort of 1950s uh, timescale, you know, and the anxiety around, you know, po the population explosion, the sort of limits that we were facing at that time. Um, you know, the very real um, threat of famine that I think had been, you know, quite common in the early 20th century. Um, you know, I just want us to kind of go back to that moment in time. I don't know. Can you paint a little picture of, of what's happening there? I mean, every generation obsesses and has anxieties, right? And I mean, you know, there was the fear of nuclear war with the Cuban Missile Crisis that's coming up shortly after this time. I mean, now we're, we're threatened by climate change. But can you take us back to that sort of cultural zeitgeist of population anxiety? Yeah, um, it's a mix of two things, um, one of the, which I think is, seems perfectly reasonable, at least in retrospect, and the other, which is really um, should make environmentalists profoundly uncomfortable. Um, there is a great fear. Um, beginning in the 1890s and then growing up until the 1920s and 1930s um, by sort of the upper crust that um, the mob of black and brown people all over the world were going to come in and sort of wipe out um, the white race. And there is a whole lot of explicitly racist um, bestsellers um, that were about just this. And there's a real overlap between the people who are worried about this and the early conservationists, the people who wanted to kind of purify the United States uh, from, you know, the lower races and the people who wanted to purify the wilderness by bringing back um, pristine nature. And uh, so you had a whole lot of kind of biological races. I don't know what to really to call them. You know, people who are on the one hand doing, you know, sort of praiseworthy things like trying to save the bison and trying to create national parks. And on the, the other hand, fretting tremendously about the um, ethnic composition of um, the United States and Europe. And this came into full flower really in the 1940s and 1950s as those um, nations, you know, in Africa and Asia um, broke off from the various colonial empires. These people felt em embattled and that there was a huge tide of humanity that was come washing over our shores and something had to be done about it. And um, it was absolutely true that the, in, you know, the invention and deployment of antibiotics and better water systems and a whole host of things had led to a gigantic population rise, particularly um, in you know, the global south. Um, but their sort of fears, understanding of what was causing it and what, if anything, to do about it were really deeply infected by um, the sort of previous generation's fears of, um, you know, the, about the ethnic purity of places like the, the United States. And these all got tangled up together in the population movement, which in the hands of somebody like Vogt, who really, by the standards of the day, was not much of a racist. He certainly, you can certainly scour 
the kinds of things that he wrote. You can find things that were uncomfortable. He was just as hard on you know the wealthy white capitalists. He regarded capitalism as um, equally destructive as you know the hordes over there. And uh, so what his goal was to introduce birth control and, if necessary, uh, sterilization. In practice, what this worked out to was um, organizations from the developed world, you know, Europe and, and, and North America, imposing um, coercive practices um, that were, you know, killed a lot of people and sterilized a lot of people and did a lot of awful stuff in the 80s, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s in places like India, um, South Asia in general, um, parts of parts of East Asia, much of Latin America and Africa. And um, so that's the sort of Malthusian side of this. And uh, on Vogt's part, in the environmental movement's uh, part, it was this belief that this huge number of people would, that the population and environmental damage were inextricably linked. And essentially, the more people, the more mouths, the more damage. And uh, I think just as a factual matter, that it's much more complicated than that. Much, and uh, that if you look at it, the kinds of things that they were um, worrying about um, are, are really off. Not to worry about mm -hmm. environmental damage, but to understand that population is the uh, is, is the cause of it. And I, I would take um, vote very much to task for that. Uh, the example I give in the book is I look at uh, this very famous book, The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. And um, it has this um, really, impressive scene right at the beginning where the Ehrlich family is in um, Delhi and uh, they take a taxi and somehow they end up in a really poor neighborhood and there's people everywhere and they're, it's just, you know, the middle of the night and they're defecating in the streets and it's horrible. And they say, this is our future. But actually Delhi at the time had fewer people than Paris. And the reason, <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's going around saying Paris is right. It's an example of a dystopian right. future. And there's the reason people are there is because of government policy. India was trying to industrialize. It located a whole bunch of um, you know steel and cement and fer fertilizer factories right in the periphery of, Del of, of Delhi, and it really wanted to attract workers to those. Uh, so it brought in huge numbers of people, lost complete control of the, of, of, of the process. And so this was a completely government-made disaster. It had nothing to do with birth rates or um, you know, any of the kind of things that uh, the sort of more biological phenomena that the Malthusians uh, trot out. Um, it was a disaster. It's just that uh, those guys completely misinterpreted the cause of, of it. Mm -hmm. And, I uh, yeah, and I think that's it's a big weakness of that Malthusian argument. You see it over and over again. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a really uh, great quote I like from, uh, I think he's, I'm going to get this wrong. I think he's either Dutch or Swedish, uh, Hans Rosling, uh, mm -hmm. uh, really great informatics guy. And he says, you know, human beings have never lived in harmony with nature. We've died in harmony with nature. Um, and certainly, you know, going back to Malthus's writings, I mean, he was agonizing about the, the fact that, you know, 40 per thousand people used to die. And now it was 30 per thousand every year. And this was going to lead to that sort of um, arithmetic versus geometric growth uh, of a population versus food supply. But, you know, something that I think is really interesting, and, and I don't know if this maps super well over to uh, Wizards and Prophets, but it's this idea of kind of humanism versus environmentalism. I was, I was talking with a friend of mine um, who went to, you know, university probably in the 70s and 80s. Um, no, sorry, would have been 90s. She's about 10 years older than me. Um, and, and she was saying, you know, the activism of her generation was totally based in humanism. It was, you know, anti-racism, anti-poverty, anti-imperialism, this kind of stuff. And 
I think we're seeing more and more that, you know, the activism of the youth these days, it's, at least in the developing world, is very much around um, environmentalist concerns now. And, and there's a bit of a dismissal of, of the human element, or it's not centered in humanism. Um, at the same time, I think if you bring up, you know, some of the um, dark underpinnings of, you know, the, the man that you call sort of the intellectual kind of godfather of the environmental movement and his um, apostles like, like Ehrlich, um, you know, if you bring up that kind of dark Malthusian undertone, they would be very quick to kind of deny that. And, you know, lastly, I think there's been this real shift in terms of, you know, you described Vogt and, and the, the kind of profits being very caught up in sort of um, the, the uh, financial elites of the country, the wealthy, the reactionaries, the conservatives. And it's been really interesting to see how, you know, the, the politics have changed and now the profits are sort of in the camp of the left kind of, and, and, you know, the wizards are, are now considered to be in the camp of the right. Like it's, how do you explain that? Well, I think it has to do, um, you know, the politics is, you know, shifts back and forth um, for all kinds of reasons. But one is the fundamental differences between the two perspectives is what the frame of reference is um, for vote. And who is you know, basically, he's an ornithologist, basically regarded himself as a biologist. The frame of reference, you know, for well-being, you know, what is good is the well-being of the ecosystem. You know, how rich is it? How thriving um, is is it? And that's how you measure things. For, um, you know, other people, the that that's like nonsensical. You know, they, they say, how can you apply that kind of value judgment to objects that are outside yourself? The, the real measure of well-being is how are people doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it, 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 it's just crazy to say, the more trees, the better off we are, or something like that. You know, a tr- uh, is a forest better than a meadow? You know, they, they make that kind of, it, it is complicated. Um, and so if your measure um, is human beings, you end up with a really radically different um, preference for the kind of policies that you 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 want you want to have um, than if your uh, measure is um, you know the world outside you and the um, in some sense the you know the health of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's what's kind of interesting um, in my reading of the eco modernist literature. Um, you know, there's this idea that, um, you know, population control should never be your goal. It, it could be a side effect, right? And so there's this idea that if we can, you know, employ uh, specific technologies that have a very low um, environmental impact, yet can still provide, you know, plentiful material and energy resources, then we can achieve higher rates of development. You know, women can be freed from sort of chattel domestic labor and get educated and empowered and, you know, have reproductive autonomy, fertility rates will then drop. And we, we actually see that happening within mm-hmm. developed countries. So, you know, there's this idea, I think, within eco-modernism that what's good for humans is good for the environment. Um, you know, that there is a kind of upper level of consumption that, you know, where things start to sort of balance out and that really, you know, those upper limits even are, are quite flexible if we, you know, say move from, you know, chemical energy to, to atomic energy, for instance, right, where there's just that like million fold gain in, in energy density. Um, but yeah, I, I think that is that is interesting that there's this, you know, anyway, there's maybe, maybe it's a little bit idealistic, but this hope that, um, you know, through meeting human goals, through being a, a humanist, you can actually improve the environment. And, and, you know, a lot of prophets, I think, sort of they're nostalgic, they're quite conservative, they hearken back to the good old days, maybe kind of pre-industrial days. But when you look at places like pre-industrial Britain, I mean, they were coppicing all of the woodlands that they kind of hadn't already felled. And, and you know, there's 
large amounts of kind of regeneration of the ecosystem once they shifted from cutting down trees to, to using coal. And obviously coal came with all sorts of its own problems, but it's just interesting, you know, especially when I speak with, you know, younger people that are very idealistic. And I, I think about the younger versions of myself kind of wanting to go back and kind of do permaculture or something, you know, the actual impact um, on the land of, of, you know, agriculture that's not very intensive can be really damaging. You can do more tilling, you need to bring more marginal land under under tillage and, uh, you know, potentially actually increase the ecologic damage. It's, it's an interesting paradigm. Yeah. Well, one of the things is that it, there's a, you know, a great deal of, I guess, for what lack of a better word, I would call philosophical confusion that sort of enshrouds this whole um, subject. Um, you know, for some eco-modernists, I'm sure you talk what their idea is that we should all somehow pack into cities and then you'd have, you know, huge amounts of unspoiled nature, um, around us where, you know, giant predators can roam around uh, and, and so forth. And I'm sure that that's a kind of a caricature, but it's pretty close um, to yeah, yeah. a vision that you hear a lot. And uh, the other version of it is of a working landscape, of mm -hmm. landscapes that have been, you know, people have loved and worked with over centuries. You know, the English countryside, you know, huge swaths of West Africa, big chunks of um, Latin America are areas where, you know, people have integrated themselves into the landscape in a truly, you know, profound and, and I think rather beautiful way. And, uh, you know, it, it's, and sometimes people, you know, on, have these sort of ideas in their head that one is somehow much better than the other. And I don't, I don't think it's um, at all obvious that which, uh, that either case is stronger than, than the, the other. And it has more to do with your intuition of what's good. And if there's a thing I was trying to get at in the book is that a lot of these discussions we have about the future and what kind of world we want to live in and uh, you know, what kind of path we should follow for our environmental dilemmas are often framed in terms of sort of you know, technical necessities like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, well, you need dispatchable nuclear or um, no, you know, there's a, the waste problem we need to have, um, you know, solar. And what's really underneath them is, uh, you know, sort of deep intuitions about the kind of life we want to lead. Um, I don't think that's bad. I do think it's bad that they're not openly discussed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just you talked about kind of, um, Working nature, unspoiled nature, and even this whole concept of nature. I think you know your your uh, book, fourteen ninety one, the Americas before Columbus. You know, was a really important expose, certainly for North Americans. I think South Americans are more aware because of the imprint of the Incan societies um, that you know pre um, European Americas were a very managed landscape, right? That there, there's not mm -hmm. really any thing as pristine wilderness anywhere in the world. And it strikes me that you know that your description of the early prophets, these kind of conservationists who wanted this idea of kind of an unspoiled nature that's now become kind of a wizardly thing where you want to rewild, right. And, and kind of right. couple humanity from nature. And I think that's a really and, interesting tension. It's something that I struggle with is, you know, again, I, I still don't label myself as an eco-modernism, uh, eco-modernist, but thinking about the clumsy ways with, within which say the eco-modernist manifesto rubs up against issues of indigenous rights, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, if we really wanted to have, you know, to return to, um, in some sense to what was there before in a place like California, um, what you'd be talking about is just a huge amount of fire. 
you know, uh, Native people were burning, you know, up to an eighth of the state every year. It was an absolutely fantastic amount of um, burning, far more. I mean, it was a much different character than what you have now, which yeah. are these giant uncontrolled wildfires. And these were just, you know, huge numbers of much, much smaller fires in the spring and fall as opposed to giant uh, summer wildfires. But mm -hmm. the point is that that nature existed for thousands of um, years. And if anything is a benchmark, it's got to be that. And uh, that is something I think that uh, makes both wizards and prophets a, a little bit uncomfortable. And so there's another theme, I guess, I talk about in the book is that we have all these apprehensions of what we mean by nature. And um, if you actually, the actual historical ecology almost always makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanted to touch a little bit more on um, the ways in which um, the politics have kind of have swapped out in terms of yeah. uh, profits sort of becoming part of, of maybe the new left. And, you know, in, in my mind, I think that has a lot to do with the way that the, the new left has kind of abandoned um, the working class as sort of its center of organizing or where it situates itself as it's kind of retreated to the academy and to the ivory tower. And in a sense, you know, much of the, the new left is actually kind of uh, very much representing an, an elite within society that's maybe out of touch with those, you know, day-to-day -day pocketbook material concerns of, you know, working class people. And it's it's interesting seeing kind of right-wing populists now appropriating that language and not necessarily delivering the goods, but certainly taking that political space back. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, something that I find very interesting is that there's this kind of idea of a like parallel libertarian authoritarian um, tendency within each group. So, you know, in terms of profits, it seems like they have a very libertarian idea of, you know, decentralized energy solutions, for instance, for climate change, right? Everyone should have mm -hmm. a, a solar panel on the roof and, a, you know, a community on wind, wind turbine over here. Um, and there shouldn't be any sort of technocratic centralized fix. Um, so very libertarian in that regard, but authoritarian when it comes to we're going to regulate human social economic activities to enforce these limits, right? Your shower is only going to be three minutes long. We're going to put a timer on there. And on the wizardly side, <clears throat> it's it's kind of the opposite, right? There's a real aversion to to regulating, you know, social and economic activities. But, you know, there's a tendency towards wanting, you know, Mesmer style French nuclear plans, for instance, that can kind of most efficiently deliver, you know, the, the benefits of a high energy society with, you know, low carbon footprint, et cetera. And it's I find that a very kind of fascinating um, twist on things. Well, I think that the um, that they have different ideas about what's authoritarian. I think if you look at the uh, wizards who want to pack everybody into cities, you'll find that they typically are really against neighborhood control because um, mm -hmm. they say that neighborhood control leads um, inevitably to nimbyism. Nimbyism immediately leads to much more lower density um, housing than they would like and the preservation of um, quote unquote values, which often means, you know, keeping certain types of people out of um, neighborhoods. And so they would like to, you know, crush you know, that, um, that, that kind of thing and have severe regulation that says you can't do this or you can't do, uh, do that. So we're and the people in those neighborhoods, I'm sure would experience that as, um, you know, authoritarian rule. So, you know, you have to be careful in, in all this that, uh, people typically, um, it's 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 I've, it's relatively rare uh, to meet somebody who is a thoroughgoing libertarian. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, usually they de, uh, they define themselves as uh, in in terms of fondness for certain types of regulation and passionate hatred for other types of regulation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. 
we were talking a little bit sort of the the um the the sorry one second here the, the differences between the the kind of technologies that each side kind of favors and it seems like um you know profits aren't technophobes i mean they're they're down with some very um high-tech solar technologies for instance but yeah. you know the these technologies need to sort of harmonize and stay within um natural flows of energy i guess Is yeah, that but they, yeah and i think even more than that um they see it as um within you know, staying within the limits means staying within uh, more democratic means of control. And so they see instead of giant centralized utilities run from huge mega power plants, they would like to have, just as you said, you know, neighborhood scale um, energy with, you know, me and my neighbors swapping back power back and forth, uh, all of us with our own little um, battery packs and maybe a, a neighborhood windmill. Um you know this this kind of thing, which they would see as as under our control, and not some utility that's you know far away, and it's just essentially views us as um, you know objects to be built. And I think this is also their fundamental um, beef with the agricultural system, is that uh, very much as a result of government policy, um, you know that was enacted. Um, kind of in parallel with the uh, technical advances of people like Borlaug, uh, the countryside all over the world, especially in the developed world, but also in the developing world, um, was emptied and put into cities. And that's led to some huge social problems, um, both here and in Europe, you know, the Gilets Jaunes protests over here, all kinds of um, rural problems with meth addiction and, uh, and you, you know, you name it. Um, and the... The, the result has been that uh, you you have these sort of profoundly different apprehensions about what we should do about these things that are tied up in turn with the uh, environmental visions. Yeah, I think that's that's the issue of agriculture is very interesting because it it points towards that tension there of um, you know Borlaug's work, um, which you know he may have saved a billion people or three billion people may be alive today because of his efforts. He got a Nobel Peace Prize mm -hmm. for that. Um, but the critics of his work would say that, you know, he, because his, um, his techniques, uh, you know, required, I guess, capital investments that it sort of discriminated against small stakehold farmers and led to, um, like agricultural conglomerates drove people off the land. And, and I think yeah. it harkens back to this idea of kind of the enclosure of the commons. And on, on the one side that would be seen as, you know, this is, you know, folks like Vandana Shiva or whatever would, would be really calling that. And I think on the other side, people would say, yeah, but I mean, agricultural rural life is drudgery and misery it's where there's the most sort of uh, backwards um you know social hierarchies where women are you know the most um abused and and sort of you know again sort of uh involved in just kind of chattel labor all day long without opportunities for education or self-advancement it's it's an interesting tension it's a very interesting tension and again it depends on what kind of values you see uh in this you see it um, played out today in the fights over GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Um, these were have you know always been presented as the future of agriculture, right? Um, mm -hmm. That's what you know folks like uh, Rob Fraley, the guy who used to run Monsanto until quite recently, would always talk about you know give these talks and say this is how we're going to do it in tomorrow. And if you don't like the agricultural system, 
um, seeing a new technology presented as the savior of that thing that you don't like, it's quite natural for you to be against it, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, you know it, from your point of view, it's like this guy is coming up, there's a fire, you want to put out the fire, and this guy's coming up and saying, hey, I've got a whole gallon of gasoline, let's pour it on there. You would say, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you'd, you'd be an anti-gasoline advocate. And um, so this is, um, you know, the kind of the thing that you see that – Borlaug's technology, though, did not have to be used in that particular way. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could do it, have done it a different way, but it worked in concert with existing government policies to try and get what they called stagnant rural labor. You know, that should be done in quotes, right? Um, yeah. Stagnant rural labor off the farm and, um, you know, into factories so they can make steel and cement and cars and, you know, all the good things for um, industrial civilization. And it worked. I mean, that happened all over the world um, with the extra productivity of agriculture being, you know, funneled into into this. And uh, the problem that we're now living with is the aftermath of that success in which you have depopulated rural areas all over the developed world with um, lots and lots of really broken communities in them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so... Yes, people are living much better. Yes, we're much more productive, but also, yes. So in in a funny way, this is one of those arguments where both sides are correct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's interesting is, you know, the kind of organic agroecology model that's favored by the profits, you know, as as a population measure. I mean, it's very labor intensive. It kind of requires you to have large families. Um, you know, and, and I think the wizards would really look at it as just, this is a tragedy. Like you're condemning people to sort of this drudgery of agricultural labor. I mean, I, you know, my, my, so let uh, me, let me, let me give you the counter argument. My, my aunt's a dairy farmer. And I mean, she's one of the most handy, intelligent people I know. Um, yeah. you know, she can weld, she can birth animals. She's basically a veterinarian. Like I have an enormous respect for farmers. Um, certainly I don't, um, I don't romanticize it. I mean, this woman sleeps you know, in little one hour bursts throughout like her four week lambing season, which she does three or four times a year. Like she's a, she's a, people don't understand, I think in terms of modern people that don't have to use their muscles to gain a living, just how, how hard these, these lives are. But yeah, it's in terms of that population issue and the agroecology and population control seems like you're, um, <laughs> you're holding a contradictory position. So, so, but here are the counter argument. Now I'm not trying to give this to you as to say, this is right, but to say, you know, there is a plausible counter-argument on this. You say, um, right now, something like 3% of the population in the United States is engaged in um, agriculture. I think that's about the right figure. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1930s, you know, when Borlaug started working, it was much more like 30%. So you've yeah. had a 90% reduction. Now, um, suppose that it was 5%. Okay, that's a huge change in farming land it also is a huge change in the number of people you need to have jobs you know there's a persistent unemployment problem in all these areas if you one of the certainties about that kind of agroecological farming is that you need more work workers Mm -hmm. to do it and it's, it's it's hard work but part of the reason it's hard work is that the people who invent farm machinery, you know, the UC Davises, the folks in Wageningen University in Europe, those German guys, the Japanese all their incentives have been to produce these gigantic, you know, half million dollar combines, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. If, you know, are there, we live in a rural community. It's a farm, you know, quarter mile away. Um, they, 
he wants to mechanize, right? He employs, he's not a large farm. He employs a whole bunch of people and the weeding and stuff like that is backbreaking. He had to import um, to get a small scale weeder. He had to buy it from Germany, Um, you know, and instantly his job was much easier. Now he's never not going to employ more people than, um, you know, a a guy who grows, uh, you know, GMO soy or something like that. But, um, he's one of the, in his, our area, he's one of the larger employers, you know, with, uh, 20, some, 20, some people, he would like it to be down to 10 and yeah. right. The wheat farmers down the, down the road of the potato farmers, they have two, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. You oh, could yeah. make an enormous difference. And the wheat farmers, you know, that's hard work, just as you say, but there's lots of people who are willing to, to do it. And so you could by judicious application of technology where it hasn't been before. There's been, you know, very little work on uh, reducing the labor for um, smaller, more complex uh, farms. You could do that. And if you apply the same kind of tax incentives you use to help farmers buy more equipment, um, you could dramatically change the situation if you wanted to and make it a much more viable um, system if that was what you wanted to do. And and I guess, I mean, this is going to sound really kind of flippant and cynical, but maybe if there's a lot of kind of upper class urban hippie children that want to go out and do that kind of labor. <laughs> yeah, but there is, there is, I mean, you know, uh, you know, here in uh, Massachusetts, where I'm telling you from, you know, this school that's down the road is the university of Massachusetts. I live there because my wife um, teaches here and um, they're an ag school, right? They're a land grant university and the, no, their enrollment is dramatically risen in the last 10 or 15 years by people who want to be small farmers. Maybe they're yeah. the children of the rich. Maybe they're a bunch of Quakers. I don't know who they, they are, but they're yeah. there. <laughs> I guess to, yeah, to, to, to pivot a little bit, um, you know, the, the argument of the profits is like, okay, you proved us wrong again, Borlaug. You, you got another 3 billion people on the planet. You know, you've, you've changed the rules of the game in terms of the carrying capacity, the walls of the Petri dish. You know, somehow you managed to push those a little further away, but we'll be right eventually, right? Like, we're going to get you eventually. This is all going to come crashing down. And I think, you know, a lot of the other criticisms of the Green Revolution are sort of the the ecologic damage from, say, draining aquifers, um, mm-hmm. you know, polluting, polluting waters, disrupting the nitrogen cycle. You know, the, I mean, that's all real. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, can you yeah. go into that a little bit for us so that we sure. can understand? You know, maybe if we so have we'll, wizard biases, we can understand uh, the critiques a bit better. Sure. I mean, you know, here, I, we, you know, I certainly um, have tried to give it to vote for the sort of population uh, stuff. Uh, what um, essentially Borlaug took this, you know, what they call the scientistic approach, you know, where you're, you you treat a problem purely as a matter of science. And mm-hmm. he, um, you know, if you read his letters, what he was looked at was purely about increasing production, uh, was about, um, you know, more calories per acre. Yeah. And um, so that was all that he was uh, focused on. But Agriculture is a human endeavor, and it exists in you know a matrix of human institutions. And the thing that he never really understood was that if you can produce three times as much food from you know an acre of land, that land is three times more valuable, right? And yeah. it become it becomes worth stealing, <laughs> and that's essentially what happened. All over the world, particularly in uh, places with um, poor, proper, poorly enforced property rights, and so um, there are real cases. There's a you know in places like um, Bangladesh where 
these kind of improvements to the land were actively resisted by farmers who feared that once the, they were installed, the, um, their land would be taken from them, and it happened. So yeah. what um, you know, the prophets, I think, are correct in saying is that the uh, consequences to the whole in terms of increased food supply were genuine and important, but the consequences to huge numbers of rural people were also negative at the same time. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of reluctance, I think, uh, among the wizards often to say, yes, <laughs> um, these, these things, um, these bad things did happen. And the hundreds of millions of, of rural people all over the world, the poorest and you know most luckless people, were displaced rather brutally, and you see that in you know like um, those Rohinton mystery novels, which are basically all about that, um, you know, a fine balance and and and, and so forth. Uh, and so that's a, a very real uh, problem, and the problems we're now having in rural United States, the rural um, Europe. Um, the giant farmer protests that you're seeing now in India, which are taking place right yeah. now as we speak, um, all are in some uh, respects, you know, owed to the Green Revolution. And um, I think the prophets are quite right when they point to them. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I was I was uh, looking at and just trying to get a sense of various attitudes towards Borlaug. And I mean, it's it really runs the, the spectrum. And, and usually they're very strongly held positions on either end. Um, you know, people seeing him as an absolute savior. And I mean, this guy, you, you have some beautiful anecdotes in your book. Um, you know, when he was at the research station in Mexico, I forget the one in the south or in the north, he um, you know, he shackled himself to the yoke to plow the land yeah. at first because he couldn't get, he didn't, he wasn't well enough funded to have a tractor until like, I think a local yeah. Mexican farmer took pity on him and he, what he cross pollinated just like, it must've been just absolute drudgery cross pollinating cross oh. these wheat varieties, right? Oh my God. It was, you know, reading about it, I, my back was aching just in sympathy from what yeah. he did. No, there was just never was a harder working guy. Um, a guy who really was motivated by the desire to feed more people. Um, you yeah. know, just a simple, genuine desire to do that um, kind of good. Um, I think it's a mistake to, um, you know, lay a lot of the negative, the blame for the negative consequences on him. What happened was that he didn't really think about, you know, he's a, he, if you look at this education, he went at the university of Minnesota you know, if you were a plant pathology uh, guy, which is what he uh, started off with, you, you didn't have to learn foreign languages. You didn't have to learn soil science. You didn't have to learn economics. You didn't have to learn, you know, virtually anything other than your own um, specialty. And he reflected that. And so he was focused like a laser beam on this one part of the problem. And it was a big, important part of the problem, but it wasn't the only part of the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, so, so carry on, yeah. And the other actors in this, you know, the governments, um, the companies, uh, the the officials, all, you know, played a role in what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess getting, coming back to that idea of, you know, the Malthusians will be proven right one day. Um, you know, uh, Borlaug's uh, style of agriculture, obviously, it was this painstaking crossbreeding um, and selection for these hyper-productive crops. But, you know, they did require much larger inputs, 
of of, uh, of nitrogen that was uh, you know fixed uh, through the use of, uh, of fossil fuels. And I mean, much of modern agriculture in terms of the kind of calories in, calories out, um, only makes sense because of the enormous fossil fuel inputs. Um, and so there's this idea in terms of you know the the way in which you know in the last 200 years or 300 years humanity has just you know undergone this incredible acceleration in terms of our technology and our capacities and the ability to increase our carrying capacity that that's all very dependent on fossilized sunlight and I mean I've heard estimates that we use basically kind of 500 years of of planetary fossilized sunlight every single day you know the the amount of energy we we use is is absolutely kind of mind boggling. Um, and you know, no kind of society in human history is able to maintain that productivity um, while reducing their energy consumption to any kind of great degree. So, I, I think that's probably one of the other big criticisms that uh, that Borlaug faces is that this this you know agriculture is completely dependent on fossil fuels, and that those those may not last forever. And, and you know, maybe it won't be for another hundred or two hundred years, but we're going to hit that that hard limit. And so, in the meantime, we should really sort of cut back and find ways to decrease the population so that we have a, a gentle landing. Is that sort of kind of what, what modern prophets are sort of saying these days I, to some degree? Or? I, to some of them, I think they, you know, uh, I don't think that's a very good argument. Um, if only because um, if we keep using fossil fuels for another hundred years, the uh, climate <laughs> consequences will be <laughs> catastrophic. So, yeah. you know, the idea that there are limits, uh, there may be limits, but they're irrelevant um, in a time when we actually dramatically need to cut fossil fuel consumption for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think a, a, a you know a, there's this expression in journalism, um, it's a sports metaphor. So sorry, um, which is that you should play Notre Dame, um, play okay. against Notre Dame, which means you should grant your opponent, you should fight your, you should argue with your opponent's best arguments, not their stupidest ones. Right. And um, that's that's an argument that I don't think is very bright. And, uh, uh, but the better argument I would argue goes something like this. We prophets told you that if you did this, you would be inflicting terrible, unacceptable environmental damage on the world. Um, you are eutrophicating, um, huge numbers of lakes and rivers. There are gigantic dead zones in the Bay of Bengal and the Gulf of Mexico off almost every agricultural coastline. Um, the soil microbiome is being, wrecked um all over the world which apparently it is i don't know that much about it but the reports that you see are dire um even the um i've forgotten the name of it from where the tractors a compactification the compactification of the soil um is a huge ruinous problem in the most developed parts of the world including the uh in in the middle west um you know you're uh, draining aquifers um at a ferocious rate with three quarters of that uh, draining being due to um, agriculture. And so the Ogallala is um, declining so much that parts of, um, I, I think it's uh, Nebraska, I think it is where the, the soil, the, the land has did, you know, dropped by about 30 feet. The same thing is happening yeah. Yeah. in um, central California in the, in the central Valley and the, and the middle East and so forth. And all of this, are tremendously difficult environmental problems that we warned you about, we said would become problems, and they are. And so when you say that profits have been proven wrong, we'll scratch our heads. And we profits, you know, so to speak, putting on their hat for a moment, look at you and say, you're crazy. They're right here. We told you they were coming. And indeed, right. if you read um, Vote's uh, book, there they all are. He's saying this is going to happen in 1948. <laughs> 
Right, right. And I, I mean, the, so that's the, the smarter, that's the smarter version of their sure, argument, sure, I think. Sure, sure. And, I, and I think that's, that's a, it's a very good argument to be making. Um, and I guess the, you know, the counter argument is, well, well, it hasn't happened yet. And humans have never been more prosperous, had longer lifespans or, you know, had better markers right. of health. To which the counter argument is, until you know, when? Is, is actually, yeah, until when, right. You're exactly. jumping off of a hundred floor uh, building, you know, the first 99 floors of the drop are pretty comfortable. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, this idea of, of kind of retreating back from modernity or abandoning um, this kind of mastery of nature, which is, has given us so much bounty. Um, for me, I think where that argument falls apart is in this idea that you can sort of, you know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Like the fruits of modernity um, are not easily sort of transported back to earlier kind of modes of production or earlier economic models. You don't have same um, again capacity to to educate women and and to entertain movements like feminism or even the abolition of, of slavery. You can very much tie that into moving from the muscle era to the machine era through the steam engine, right? So um, that that's kind of where I, I I worry about you know what the prophets are advocating for us to do. And um, well, you know, I I think that you certainly can find um, you know prophets advocating for really silly things. <laughs> And um, I'm pretty sure you can find wizards advocating for things that you would sort of roll your eyes at, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, again, um, imagine, um, you know, and I, I, again, I'm not saying that this is what I'm trying to. You're playing devil's uh, advocate a bit, I guess, right? It's not even de devil's advocate. I'm just trying to present their side of yeah, yeah. the thing as I understand it. Yeah. Um, and again, and I'm also trying to present their what I think of as their best arguments as right. opposed to the other one where we should all put on gingham dresses <laughs> and the women should put on gingham may, dresses. May, yeah. I mean, it may, it may not be the best argument, but I mean, that is something that really pervades um, the environmental movement. Certainly folks like, you know, Naomi Klein, for instance, um, I'm not sure to what degree Bill McKibben, you know, whether it's, it's really consciously stated or not. I mean, these are the kind of implicit messages, right. In terms of, you know, drastically yeah. cutting back on our energy and you don't, you don't have to actually, they don't kind of walk through the, the consequences of what that actually means. Um, well, but if, they, if you think it through, it's, yeah. yeah. So I reviewed um, what I think is Bill McKibben's most recent book a couple of years ago called Blood and Oil, called Blood and Oil and Honey, Oil and Honey, sorry. Um, yeah. And it's about his, you know, activism and the anti-climate stuff. And it's contrasted with a, a guy who lives near him um, who wants to, the story of him setting up his uh, honey farm. And uh, if you read that book carefully, um, the picture, that guy, he seems like a great guy, um, wants to set up an organic honey farm, but he's using um, a boatload of modern technology uh, to survey the health of his bees. To oh, and these bees are an invasive them. species, too, to North America, right, Charles? Right, right. <laughs> Everyone loves the bees, but they're a, they're a weed from Europe. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, you know, and the kind of farm, I mean, it seems fine to me, uh, you know, and it doesn't seem like uh, some remnant of the past. It seems like something that's trying to keep certain kinds of traditional values in terms of connection to the land and, uh, you know, uh, working um, with uh, natural um, cycles in, in, in a way. Uh, but it's, you know, when he's using these very fancy uh, things to to alert for the presence of mites on the bees, or when he's testing the honey with all kinds of um, fancy um, equipment to make sure of its uh, purity, when he's using 
um, all kinds of centrifuges to whirl out the, 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 the honey. You know, he's doing what somebody did in the past, but with uh, 21st century uh, technology. And I, I think the argument that would be made is that the kind of giant farms that we have um, are not a natural creation. They're created by decisions of government about what we subsidize, what we approve, and that we could um, do the same for smaller farms and have a mosaic of smaller farms. They would definitely use more land um, than we, we now have, but they would also employ more people and you would have more rural, um, vibrant rural communities. And you could use the same kind of labor-saving devices to um, make it so that it wasn't complete, that it wasn't drudgery. Hard work it always be as farming is always, but that there, and that there's enough people who would want to do that if they could make a working um, wage at it. Yeah. That's so that would be, the, I think, the good argument. Yeah, that's an interesting proposition. Let's let's move a, a little bit beyond um, the kind of back and forth on the the wizard yeah. versus the prophet um, towards, I guess, um, a synthesis. So I think one of the more interesting chapters that I came across that that painted that idea of, of a synthesis. And I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not a kind of all of the above mushy middle type guy. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, I think you need to assess arguments, and it's it's kind of the modern convenient thing to do. Why can't we all just get along and and kind of abandon the merits of either argument? I like mm-hmm. to hash it out. Right. But an area that I personally felt there was synthesis was in your description um, of the Israeli water system. And you focused on Walter Loudermilk and Albert mm-hmm. Howard and this kind of hard and soft water policies, um, you know, leaving aside, I guess, some of the regional geopolitics and, you know, the way in which uh, Israeli water usage uh, impacts the Palestinians, for instance. It's a very interesting system, um, this this kind of combination. Um, can you can you walk us through that a little bit? I mean, and do sure. you agree that it's an interesting synthesis or that these two things play together well? I would say it's a synthesis, but it's a it's it's one that is um, more like uh, two parallel systems that um, are operating at the same time and don't necessarily get along that well. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, what you have in Israel is a, is a you know, and again, sort of weird to say this, but let's leave aside the geopolitics for the, for the moment. And, you know, the questions of like, who does the water really belong to and all that, which, um, and, and sort of put on our, you know, technical hat on and, and, and we'll get all stempy. We'll leave behind the sociology and just figure out how to make the unfertile crescent a little more fertile and get a bit more water. Right. 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 Okay. And so there is, you know, on the one hand, all these um, systems for recycling water, which is uh, essentially the difference between wizards and prophets on the question of water is the question of new water versus um, um, bringing it, you know, using your old water. Well, Um, new water is like in, California, where they have giant channels that uh, and canals that bring in water from the Colorado, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles to places like like Los Angeles. You know, it's the stuff that you see in the movie Chinatown, right? And right. what that is is the idea is let's just you know bring in the the water and then people will use it however they 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 use it. Um, the profits say, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, there's there's not that much water, which they're right about. Um, almost always that leads to one kind or another of environmental disaster. And so you have it like with the Colorado running out of water before it actually hits the ocean um, with these uh, incredible systems like you see in the Stafford Valley of um of Eastern Arizona, where they grow Pima cotton, which is this very, very fine, you know, wonderful uh, cotton, but they're growing it in 110 degree weather with, um, 
you know, with flood irrigation, they're flooding the fields. <laughs> and, right. and, and, you know, when I asked the local water control officer, I was there a couple of years ago, um, you know, how much uh, water is just, you know, that is taken from the Colorado River um, and pumped thousands of miles or a thousand miles there. And I said, how much of it goes up into the air when it hits the field? And he said, oh, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, the prophets look at that and say, that's insane. You know, what you should be doing is, uh, um, you know, harvesting the, and using thriftily the water that's already there. So you don't have to build these mega systems that are incredibly expensive and, and have environment, big environmental downsides. And so that's a, the initially what they did um, in Israel, you know, on all the kibbutzes and so forth. And they had these incredible systems where they would um, take um, uh, water that had been sort of done a primary cleanup from sewage water and filter it through, you know, um, you know, a hundred meters of sand or so, you know, these natural sand dunes on, on the coast and then recycle it back and um, use it for agricultural water. And, uh, you know, they were real pioneers in the, that, that kind of system. They invented, not as they didn't invent it, but they essentially um, took the invention of drip irrigation, which um, came from, uh, you know, scientists in California and other places, and they made it practicable. Most of the big drip irrigation companies in the world today are, are, are from Israel. And drip irrigation is where you have um, tubes that have these tiny holes in them, and they just let out very small amounts of water over a long period of time and very slowly provide um, irrigation as opposed to flooding the field, which is what we typically do in the United States, um, where you just wash the whole field with water. And you can use you know yeah. 1% of the water, some tiny uh, you know, amount, so that they use these systems that were very prophetic. But um, also uh, shut out some of the big utilities, and so then um, you know new new governments came in and they said let's build um, desalination plants. And um, what's been true in Israel, and so Israel has the sort of largest collection of big desalination plants um, in the world, um, sort of per capita, um, and they've provided just a tremendous amount of water. Um, it's been a fantastically successful system, but it has had some severe um, environmental downsides, um, like in the uh, in the um, very southern tip of Israel. There's this whole area that's apparently famous for its scuba diving and beautiful fish and so forth. And these big piles of salt are um, changing that come from desalination are changing the salinity of the water and making it harder and harder for the aqu uh, aquatic life to be there. And the same thing is happening on the northern coast of, um, of Israel. Getting rid of the salt turns out to be a big problem for de desalination. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. and the money that's gone into constructing these big plants and these big pipes that come from them and the networks or distribution has taken away from the development of the other system. So they have both systems, but it's really been a lot of jostling back and forth between them. And did they, I'm sorry, I guess, that's a really long-winded answer. No, no, that's, I think it's a really important example. So I'm glad you went into it in some detail, mm -hmm. but it kind of sounds like they, they need both to sort of live at the, the level of development that they do. Um, and, you know, yes. they, they need and extra they, water from the desal plants, but they, they don't want to be wasteful of it. So they're they're trying to use it as efficiently as possible. To me, that sounds like a decent synthesis, like maybe conservation wouldn't be enough. Um, what happens, though, is that when you do both, you end up paying for the expenses of both. And, um, and governments, and one of the problems, um, I think, of all 
democratic governments is um, Stuart Brand is writing a book about this. Um, I'd like to sort of gnash my teeth when I heard of it because it's such a good idea. It's they don't want to pay for maintenance. And, yeah, yeah. and when you have these two systems, it is what I think. I think you're absolutely right. But in practice, they don't want to do it. <laughs> governments typically don't want to do it because it's uh, too, too much maintenance. And it's, you know, it's a source of when we move over to the issue of energy, which is just so important now in the midst of, you know, mm-hmm. contemplating and trying to <laughs> trying to engineer an energy transition away from carbon based uh, energy. You know, I do see that tension amongst, uh, you know, I, I would consider myself strongly on the wizard side when it comes to the energy side of things for a number of reasons. But I do find it frustrating, um, the kind of dismissal, dismissal of um, conserving energy as well, um, you know mostly because of the sheer scale of, of what we need to achieve in terms of deep decarbonization. I mean, 85% of primary energy is still fossil fuel related. Even if we right. were to have the most efficient standardized, you know, nuclear build out in the world, we're still not going to get there for a long time. Every carbon atom we emit now is, is going to come back and haunt us later, um, you know, and repay that, that debt two or three. Awesome. So, yeah, so I mean, I, we can do I both. With you. It seems like a really important thing, but but I do see this uh, this kind of ideological rigidity amongst members of my kind of new wizardly tribe, um, where it's just there's a kind of complete dismissal. And maybe maybe I'm being inaccurate here because I think everyone loves LED lighting and things like that. No one wants to kind of throw incandescent bulbs in or take a step backwards. But yeah, I guess maybe it's because the as you were saying, like doing both involves enormous costs of both. Well, also yeah, and they they operate on a on a, on a different scale. Um, and in, you know, and, and in different ways. I mean, one of the great things about nuclear power, in a, in a weird way, is that it allows you to be lazy. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You know, it's kind of like if you get the power plant right, which is obviously a non-trivial task, but then you can just plug it into the existing system. Yeah. And um, it's like, um, you know, whereas if you want to do what the uh, profits do and you know have these much more decentralized solar and uh, system that there's a lot more work in, in, in involved with that because you have to change the system yeah. um, and the and that is also true um, with uh, you know energy reduction because what you then have to do is change things like building codes you have to mm-hmm. change the way architects are educated you have to change the um, the the recommendations of the engineers you know there's a whole bunch of of mid-scale to small-scale um, changes that you have to make. You have to make it so that I'll give you an example um, that's very close to my, my heart. Uh, my wife um, is an architect, uh, teaches at U- University of Massachusetts near us, and um, she builds, um, you know, as kind of part of her practice, these experimental energy-efficient homes. And, um, you know, they're close to zero energy and they use all kinds of modern materials and, and so forth. And I, I, I think they're really beautiful. Um, but one of the things that's really frustrating for her is that the um, energy efficiency, which you would think is a, just an absolute no brainer in terms of the value of the house adds nothing. When hmm. the bank looks at the house and the, the, this house is not going to use any energy, you know, uh, because it's, you know, super insulated and that, that sort of stuff with all these wonderful modern um, insulation techniques we have. It, it, it just doesn't matter. And so this extra cost is in no way recuperated by the value to, to, of the house. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not a physical law or anything. That just happens to be the way banks operate. <laughs> and, right. and, you, know, you know, and so a lot of the, the things involved here um, as a general lesson is that it has to do with 
things like governmental policies. It has to do with, um, you know, all kinds of odd inst institutions. And the one of the attractions of um, the nuclear power is that you sidestep a whole bunch of those. So, you know, throughout this conversation, um, you know, because I think I've been coming at this with a bit of a wizardly angle, you've been giving me sort of the best of a prophetic response. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you could take a stab at something for me. <laughs> I got a challenge for you. Um, how if, if you were going to try and sell nuclear power to the prophet, say I'm a prophet and you're trying to convince me that that uh, based on your kind of deep understanding of the psychology of the prophets, how would you make a kind of pitch for nuclear energy to me? I, you know, I often wonder. Um, I've, I've thought a lot. Of, this is a wonderful question, um, and I've thought a lot about it. Um, I think what uh, the prophets don't like is sort of the massiveness and the centralization of nuclear energy, um, and that then there's these other arguments about it's unsafe or what what have you that they sort of um, toss in because everybody looks for prudential arguments uh, rather than just talk about principle. And um, so then I wonder what would happen. I mean. If you had, if you said nuclear energy is a bridge fuel, you know, we have small scale, you know, almost neighborhood sized nukes. Um, we scatter them all over the place and we figure we're going to have them for 50 years until battery technology gets to the place where we can um, really um, imagine having um, efficient batteries and uh, efficient, uh, efficient solar. And we have tons of examples of these small-scale um, nukes um, that that are exist in you know all over the United States and, and Europe with nobody might. And there's a there's a nuclear power um, plant in, at the University of Chicago, right in downtown Chicago. There's another one in Columbia University. Um, there's all these uh, you know medical nukes. There's a ton of different kinds of very small um, nuclear powers. But instead, the energy um, system is bias towards these enormous projects that you had in South Carolina, which become magnets for, um, for, for opposition. So I, I wondered if you would, if you would say, look, we're envisioning this as uh, something that's going to be here for about 30 years while we deal with climate change, and then we can decide whether we want to keep it or not. You got the wizard in me all fired up there, Charles, I got to say. It's an issue that I think in the kind of pro-nuclear community, we kind of arm wrestle about because um, you know, small nuclear is sort of the, uh, the fad of the day. And, um, you know, it, it's, it kind of addresses some of the, the NIMBY concerns and, and uh, it hopefully addresses some of the concerns of, of the profits and of other anti-nuclear folks. But I think a big argument in terms of, you know, the benefits of having, um, you know, large centralized nuclear is, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I did an interview with um, someone from France about kind of the social solidarity model of their nuclear sector, which was, mm -hmm. you know, that you, having these these you know efficient large projects that are able to provide like a standard um, high quality um, level of energy that's affordable to the the whole population um, is it's actually ver a very progressive and good thing compared to this sort of um, you know uh, great leap forward of everyone having their own little production in their backyard, which in, in a sense is very libertarian and leads actually mm -hmm. to a lot of inequalities in terms of like well. Do you own your house? Can you can you can you get that loan from the bank to put the solar panels on? Oh, you're getting subsidized by your neighbor who's the ratepayer who who doesn't own a house. So it's this weird wealth transfer, you know, mm -hmm. from poor to rich. And then you know also these these issues just of you know the 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 scale again of the transition and the material intensity, what we're going to need, the amount of copper and stuff for all the extra transmission between these small inefficient um, 
decentralized structures. Yes, it appeases the profits, but it's an enormous waste of copper and resources. And shouldn't the profits get that? That you know, we want to use as little you know material um, inputs as possible to steward the environment. And it's you know these kind of arguments that I think uh, <laughs> drive me sure. crazy personally. But sure, I, yeah. even, I, I think I think you're right. But you know, the um, I think the right answer um, is that neither side purely cares about material things. Um, you know, central to the profits argument is a sense of you know living at the proper scale. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that, that there's a, a kind of um, humble community oriented way that we should live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's uh, that, that goes all the way back to Rousseau and Jefferson and, you know, tons of people before that. Right. I mean, it's not a strange thing. It's a big part of the um, human enterprise. And then the other is that the human enterprise should be written very large and, you know, boldly go where no person gone before. And that goes back to people like Condorcet. It's really a long, ancient um, argument about our place in nature. And so, and so um, you know, to a pro- I think to a prophet, you know, if they were being honest and he said, yeah, you're going to use more copper. But if I use, you know, I don't really care about using more copper if, I, if, if it's making it possible for huge numbers of people to live better. Yeah. Uh, and more appropriately. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> but I, I don't think yeah. it's 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 I don't think it's really uh, hypocritical. And the other thing that I, I see in that is um, there is a fundamental unease, I think, um, that, that many people have with these large structures because they think they're fundamentally unresponsive and uncaring to their concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, Facebook or Amazon or, or, or Walmart or the federal government or whatever your bugaboo is. And, um, you know, it's striking to me that um, that these uh, two large plants that they just were building in South Carolina, they, they just didn't have any community support, even in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it was just a matter of scale. I don't think it was. I don't think it's anti-nuclear. They just looked at these gigantic things and said, "This isn't for me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, the, the, most nuclear plants in their communities—they're very popular, obviously, because they provide you know around a thousand yeah. jobs per plant, and they're well-paying and things. But yeah, yeah I, yeah, I don't know about Vodal. Yeah, I, I guess like kind of a closing question for you. Um, uh-huh. In terms of um, you know. W- both both approaches are, are you know, we're, we're in this Petri dish to some degree, right? And I think there's this issue of carrying capacity and whether that is a fixed thing or whether we can play with the fundamental dynamics that might determine that, play with the variables a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think we can personally. Yeah, I do, I do as well. I, I think what's interesting, there's a, a thinker, a guy named Mark Mills, um, who, who talks a lot about sort of anticipating what our future energy needs will be. And he says, you know, for food, that's quite easy to predict. You know, the difference between a starvation diet and a diet of opulence is about, you know, two to four times the, the number of calories, right? For mm-hmm. kind of the products that we use, that's a little easy, a little harder because who knows what new gadget we're going to want next. But it's, it's, you can still predict it. You can do some math on it. But he says mm-hmm. you know, for energy itself, especially with, you know, the rise of, of uh, complex computing, um, artificial intelligence, um, you know, neural learning networks, um, you know, the, the potential for that um, amount of energy that we'll need is, is really almost infinite. And I mean, that, of course, brings with the benefit of being able to sort of sequence the coronavirus genome every time there's a new variant and have it out, you know, in a few days, right? And all the, the medical mm-hmm. research we've been able to do. 
Um, you know, I was talking with an expert uh, on China who was saying all of the nuclear they brought on in the last, you know, 15 years is going to be just enough to fire up all the new 5G infrastructure there. Do you think that that um, let's say we take a wizardly path? Do you think that human beings are going to satiate themselves and arrive at a certain place? We're seeing those trends in terms of certainly fertility declining in, in developed countries. What do you see in terms of, you know, your best predictions looking forward? Um, you know, are we going to make it? Are we going to stay within the confines? Um, I mean, obviously climate change, this, this is a very big question and, and a bit of a, a mess of a question to throw at you, but I guess I'm just trying to get your sense of, you know, are you, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you? So here's, here's a, here's the description of a future. I think quite possible. You know, I'm not predicting it, but I, I was certainly be surprised 50 years from now or whatever, you know, 70 years from now, we're looking at a future where the, um, you know, the temperature has gone up 2.5 degrees. That's mm -hmm. quite a bit with some very negative consequences. But most of the, what is it, 1.3 billion people in the world without electricity now have electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so is that a good world or a bad world? Yeah, I guess it, it depends what, if, if we're smashing into the side of the Petri dish because you've got a lot of uh, agricultural land that's no longer useful. But I mean, that's that's certainly the argument that, um, you know, folks like Michael Schellenberger make where they say, listen, deaths from natural disasters have dropped 100 fold since the beginning of the 20th century. Right. And that's development. That's, you know, um, water drainage systems and meteorologic uh, prediction and, you know, health, health infrastructure. And so it's, you know, and I guess that's the Bjorn Lomberg argument as well, right? Like we can't just focus on climate change or these other issues. It's, it's uh, right. Well, how do you balance them? And I think that has to do again, you know, not to duck the issue, but to say that, that it has to do yeah. with value. And the other thing is, um, you know, I think if you're a prophet and you look at the farmland that can't be used, you know, because it's, uh, you know, desertified or, 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 mm -hmm. or what have you, you look at that and say that that is a loss in and of itself, even if we're able to make up for it by growing stuff elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, just wrecking a whole bunch of land, that's just bad. And, um, and then a, a, a wizard might look at that and say, well, yeah, but uh, we're still feeding everybody. And, you know, there's no intrinsic difference between the desert, you know, in terms of what God thinks or something. Um, and again, this is, uh, you know, a, a question of, of, of values. I can imagine that world in which there's quite a lot of, uh, of loss and yet human beings are, 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 are better off. And uh, depending on what kind of, uh, lens you put on, you say that's uh, a triumph, or you feel really bad about it. Okay, final question. I promise, Charles. Yeah, I, Kim I, Stanley I Robinson. I can keep you on forever, yeah. but yeah. Um, so do, you, do you think that the sort of wizard and prophet um, camps are as fixed in um, our kind of philosophical imagination and permanent as, say, the political left and political right? Like, is this always with us? Is this just? Uh, well, what's the weird thing about the? Political left and the political right is they keep switching. <laughs> you know, I know. Like <laughs> it's a morality play in which the you know the vices and virtues keep going off stage and switching masks. Um, totally. And so, um, in that respect, yeah, I think they're probably about as fixed as uh, as this. No, I you know the thing about all this is these aren't physical laws, right? Um, you know, there's no inherent thing that says that people have to do this, um, but it's just been um, a particularly persistent pattern that's now uh you know gone on since the 1940s mm -hmm. at least yeah and um you know i there's no reason it, it couldn't change but i don't see that much evidence that it is changing 
So are you saying like the profit school is new since the 40s and that didn't exist so much before because everyone was yeah. so concerned with meeting their material needs and people were saying environment? Who gives a shit about the environment? We gotta we gotta put food in our mouths. Well, like, is, is that know, profit thing a new yeah, phenomenon? In a way, yeah, relatively. Um, you know, it's the more modern of the two, I think. Um, right. The kind of uh, and it really comes to the idea with the idea that there is something called the environment, which is again a contribution of William Vogt. Before, when you talked about environments, you talked about specific locales. You know, you would say, and they, they had this kind of there's this kind of environmental what they, geographical racism, as they called it. You know, how people who grew up in um, in hot places were slower and stupider, and that 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 sort of stuff that you see in textbooks from the 1910s. Um, uh, and then what, um, and the idea was the environment was a place and the particulars of that place acted on people and vote took that and flipped it around and said, no, the environment refers to the whole world and it's a place that people act on. You know, the, 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 the agency got switched as I think the social scientists would say. And, uh, that is uh, something that he came up with in the late, uh, 1940s along with people like it with Aldo Leopold. And um, it's now such a big part of um, the way we think that we don't even realize that uh, this is a concept that some guy we never heard of invented that, um, in, you know, within living memory. And I mean, that may be how people look back on your contribution here with uh, giving us these archetypes. So, Charles, uh, thank you for uh, introducing some of our listeners for the first time to this, this wizard and prophet uh, archetype and metaphor. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I am contemplating uh, starting a decouple podcast book club. Um, so uh, if people are interested in, uh, in book clubbing The Wizard and the Prophet, um, you should definitely uh, message me on, uh, on my Twitter account at decouple podcast. And uh, I really am looking forward to setting something like this up. And I'm sure uh, Charles will be interested in, in selling some books and uh, we, could all, uh, <laughs> we could all benefit here. Charles, how can, uh, how can my listeners uh, learn more about you and, and, uh, and find you online in, in some way, shape or form? Um, well, my website is now um, down and got hit by a domain squatter, and I've been too lazy to put it back up because I'm finishing another book. Um, but eventually I will put it um, back up. Uh, for now, I guess the best way to do it would be actually to read uh, something that I wrote, um, which, you know, of course, being a writer, I'm really happy to have you do. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And just uh, give us a quick sneak preview on what, what your upcoming book is. It's a book about the North American West. And um, it's one of the arguments that it makes is that um, in some ways, the future of the West, you know, the, the foreseeable future, the next 50 to 70 years um, will have a lot to do with what it was like, you know, a couple thousand years ago hmm. when that West was hotter and drier than it is now. And when it was a jumble of different languages and, um, and places and peoples. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll be, uh, I'll be cruising Amazon looking, uh, looking to see when that title emerges. Um, thanks, thanks so much again, Charles, for coming on the show. It's, uh, it's uh, certainly been a, an aspiration. You were the kind of the, the main topic on the episode one of the Decouple podcast. And I think this is episode 34. So it's, it's great to have finally made your acquaintance and, uh, and kind of made, made this dream come true of, uh, of getting to talk to, uh, to the person who kind of inspired the first episode. So thank, thanks again for coming on. Oh, Chuck's <laughs> my pleasure. You, you're blushing yet. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, take good care, Charles. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.